and we're recording. So tonight's guest is Brian Hill of The Complete Combatant. Brian, thank you so much for doing the honor. Man, it's my honor. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here and to spend some time with you. And uh, this is this is a good thing you're doing. I'm glad to be a part of it. Oh, thanks a bunch. I'm glad you're a part of it. I uh, So Brian, Brian has a heavy... Uh, I'm trying to think of a good, uh, you know, intro for you, <laughs> even though we're already <laughs> recording. It's no, it's no mulligans here. It's no takebacks. But, um, but yeah, one thing that really kind of got me interested in Brian Hill was the work that you've been doing with, uh, you know, active self protection on Dry Practice Monday. Um, that really got me. Uh, it really attracted me to, you know, like that was really my first introduction to Brian Hill. Um, and then I met you at TACCON. And in the first five minutes, you changed my life. We were mm-hmm. doing a demonstration on, on you know, not stance, but posture. And you chose me as a demo and you said, hey, uh, you're just way too tense. And that ended up translating into almost every facet of my life. And so, you know, from there, I came back for a couple more classes, got some really good coaching. And that was where I really, I really saw the talent that you have for just really high level coaching on a very individualized level. I'm talking, I went to your class and you have 14 students and we all walked away feeling like we had 14 private lessons and it was just incredible. So if you could take a couple of minutes to tell us about the, uh, the classes that you offer right now, and I'm particularly interested in your deliberate coaching class and your inner game of shooting class. I really want to hear about those. Well, they're, they're, they're frankly kind of the same thing uh, coming at it from different ways. Uh, I have nearly four decades of coaching experience, which is over 100,000 hours, which is a ridiculous amount of time. Uh, and what I recognized early in the shooting industry is we have a lot of curriculum-driven instructorship. Here's our curriculum, and this is what you teach, but there's not much going on on how to coach people. And uh, that's what I really have an interest in is uh, people first and how people work, uh, what the psychological manifestations of decisions are, physiological, how do we make them better uh, as a, uh, you know, I was an MMA coach before this. So that's about as close as you get to putting somebody in a position of death. There is a likely outcome of that, but mentally it's such a struggle for people and you hear cliche statements in athleticism that's won and lost in the locker room. And people who haven't played sports believe that the coach gives a great speech and that inspires everybody and you play well. But that's not really true. Uh, The work is laid well. Uh, The coach sets the clear goal. He manages the EQ of the group. And then they go out and play to their highest level. And he takes no no responsibility for that unless they don't play well. Then he fixes everything afterwards. And uh, I wanted deliberate coaching to be a part of the curriculum where people could learn how to coach. Uh, You know, running a line is important, but interacting with people understanding the pressures they're under, how they make decisions, and why oftentimes, as important as it is, technical work doesn't fix our problems. Uh, it's only a third of it. Uh, the other third is psychologically, how do we make decisions under pressure? And then the most important one is biology over personality. Uh, what does your body dictate that you've got to do in this moment? Because you have tremendous chemical releases happening, biochemicals. So you're getting, getting a real dump and you've got to learn how to manage all this stuff. Um, my friend John Hopman at Filster said, hey, if you could teach any class in the world, what would you teach? And so I came up with the deliberate coaching class. And John said, that's great. 
what about me? I want to come to class too. I don't really care about coaching. And I thought, oh, well, there's a, there, there's a little bit of hubris on my part. Everybody wants to be a coach. So I made the inner game of shooting, which is an homage to the inner game of tennis and golf, which as a young martial arts instructor was the first thing that I read that ever yielded some value in teaching. Uh, it changed my life. And uh, if they ever get upset with my name in my class, uh, I understand and I'll change it. But I wanted to pay homage to something that meant the most to me. And what I see with uh, shooters, um, especially intermediate advanced shooters, is a high level of burnout. And we saw this in the martial arts quite frequently. Uh, you chase external goals. You want somebody's patch. You want somebody's certification. You want to take this class. But eventually, it's not enough. Uh, you don't enjoy your practice or you don't practice at all. Uh, you get aggravated with it. You see other people moving ahead of you. It feels like that you're never quite competent and confident in what you're doing. And I wanted to address those problems and teach people not only how to practice well, but how to manage themselves because the key and the only constant in every fight in your life is you. And if you don't understand yourself, as Sun Tzu said, you can't win any battles ever. And understanding yourself is the essential. And when we take a martial training aspect like this, what we're doing is refining the self in a very small area where we can make huge gains in the rest of your life. Like you've honored me with your comment that it changed the way you thought. That's what good coaching does. That's what good training does is it changes you on the small scale and it has ramifications through the rest of your life of how you make decisions, how you approach things and how you look at it. So what we're doing is teaching people to think critically about their performance and who they are and how they can improve themselves with the inner game of shooting. Uh, and I'm giving a lot of freedom in that class which is something I don't see in the firearms industry. There's a lot of uh, exploration, experimentation, and speculation so that people can get a chance to figure out who they are as a shooter, how they can improve. We can measure everything. Uh, you and I were talking about the timer before class. It's really important uh, how to set up training methodologies. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited. I taught the first one last week, and it was just uh, it was a joy as a coach to teach that class because it was coaching. It wasn't running a line and just teaching people how to shoot. It was teaching people about themselves. That is outstanding. Teaching people about themselves. Wow. So I'm sure that you get a lot of people in that class that is, I'm talking a wide array of uh, levels of shooting. You have some beginners. Uh, you have some shooters with some more experience. Is there a difference between the way that you coach beginning shooters, beginner shooters versus shooters that are more experienced? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, a lot of times we like to say there's no, there's nothing more advanced than fundamentals, but uh, I don't think that's entirely true. It's a simplification of the fact that your fundamentals should be very good. Uh, I look at beginners as somebody who needs to learn handle, how to handle the firearm to do so safely and then hit the target. And frankly, with a good instructor, that can be handled in four or five hours. It's not a complicated task. Uh, then they need to learn to be efficient. Where can we shave off the excesses? That's the intermediate training level. And then the advanced training level is how can we perform under contextual value when we have different contexts that make us make different decisions? Like I'm going to shoot, you know, uh, the test, 10 rounds, 10 yards, 10 seconds. Then I have to make some really good decisions before I do that. It's primarily an accuracy test. There's some time in it, but it's primarily accuracy forward. So I really want to see the sights well and feel the trigger and shoot well. 
so I want the advanced shooter to understand how they perform and how to put it together and then give them a chance to excel in that contextual environment. And then we'll be revisiting, you know, uh, the other processes. But I think once we get somebody handling a gun safely and hitting the target, it's time to move on. Uh, I think one of the big failures in the firearms industry is holster work. Um, you know, not to name any other large groups that certify people, but it's, you know, five or six blocks before they learn to, to work with the holster. And I understand it seems easier for us not to do holster work. Uh, but if you've ever competed or run a table, table starts are dangerous too. And we know that that person at the gun shop bought a holster and they're messing with it. And if we don't teach them as soon as possible, what good holster work looks like, we remove one of the safety devices that we all preach. So I want people to know that there's a graduation and an improvement process. And then uh, when you're doing an intro class with beginners, we've, we're the only chance that they're going to have to see a professional instructor. If we do our job well, we can really motivate them to seek more, to know that there's more. Because oftentimes with those classes, we just leave them with, this is how it is. I expect you to behave this way. And if you don't, you're a failure. And that's not the way to motivate people in the long run. We've got to get them curious about what they're doing. Uh, they've got to have a purpose for it. They've got to have a passion for it. Uh, they've got to do it because it's their own idea and they got to seek some mastery, but we don't lay out what mastery looks like. So that's the difference. Uh, how do we look at each group? And uh, oftentimes these instructors, we get caught in the beginner cycle of training, the intermediate cycle. We don't really step outside of that. It's hard. It is hard. Mm -hmm. It is hard. So that's really interesting. You kind of answered my next question. I was going to ask like what ask that boundary anyway. was. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Um, so we said that, uh, a beginner student, uh, a beginning student, uh, once they actually learn to shoot, once they get the fundamentals down, um, uh, that's relatively simple. And so from there, is that the point that they cross over from being a beginner student to something beyond that? Or is there something else that that ends up being that boundary? So the biggest indicator of, of true performance is always confidence. Now, it's hard to define what confidence is. But confidence comes from understanding what's important, what the process is, how much time do I have to do it, and how much information do I need. So if we can clearly get through those preferential biases, those are the biases that exist in the brain. And that's why we have a lot of silly arguments on the Internet is those those preferences. Uh, you know, firearms yeah. instructors love to be accuracy first. Uh, every bullet's attached to a nun and a, an orphan and a lawyer. Right. But the other side of that is if you don't shoot at all, you die. So neither one of those outcomes are acceptable. And at very high levels, we know that speed and accuracy exist together. They don't exist. They've never existed separately. They need to be trained independently. They have to be combined in performance mode. So to help people move over and cross over, the big thing is we have to teach them the order. How do you do this? You know, and then we have to teach them what's important. And what we always say is, you know, you need to have a clear goal. A clear goal could, should always be see the sights relative to the target. Notice how I added relative to the target because we know people under pressure may only see the target or the sights. They may not see both. And then how much time do you have to do it? Because there is a time factor. Uh, even if you don't have a timer in a gunfight, 
there are some metrics that exist in human fighting that always have. Uh, a good fighter can throw at least five punches per second. Uh, a trained athlete can take five steps per second. All right. A good shooter, not even exceptional, can shoot five shots per second. I have friends that can shoot six or seven per second. So those are the timers. And whoever can do it in a timely manner with just enough information wins. So that's what we have to get them to recognize that this is a process of procedural biases and what's important. And if they recognize that, they begin to trust themselves. And once you truly trust your own judgment, which is fighting, intuition, uh, that's the primary response of fighting because logic's too slow. Once you develop the trust in yourself, then confidence grows. Because when you step up to the line, you know what you're capable of. And your, your expectations will be no different than the outcome because you've truly measured yourself and you make a good decision where you're not just hoping and praying everything works out or this is my good run. Uh, I know how well I can shoot something. I know what I can do at this level. I know how much I need to see. I, have no, I know how much time I need to do it. I know what's important. And that's the difference. Once we get to that, uh, we have a thinking shooter that can handle, frankly, just about anything in the world. Absolutely. Anything in the world. Um, so it's pretty obvious that you know a whole lot about fighting. And <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I like to think that, you know, that that harkens back to your background in MMA. Um, I'm curious, Brian, I want to know more about what you used to do before you guys before you got started coaching shooting. So it's a long, long story of a, a, a strange child that was born into a rough household. And uh, he really has to figure out how is he going to survive. And I watched Kung Fu when I was a kid. And it resonated with me that David Carradine was not only a bad dude, he was a wise dude. And I knew that I needed to make good decisions. So martial arts really influenced me early. And then as soon as I could, I started my first job when I was 12. And uh, I was 15 working at Kmart. Martial arts instructor came in. He just assumed I was older. Uh, said, hey, you can come to classes. This was 1980, and I paid $15 a class. I was making $2 an hour. That's how much I wanted this. Uh, he turned out to be not the best person in the world for me, but I never gave up on that. And I knew if I didn't discipline my chaotic soul that I was going to end up being a perpetrator of these atrocities that were being fostered on me. And then I had to find a way to discipline myself, apply structure, understand myself at a higher level and do something that mattered to me. And the only time I could find true clarity was fighting. Uh, there was enough chaos and the goal was so simple that I could actually concentrate and focus and pay attention. Um, you know, a lot of people call me a wordsmith now, which I find funny because I barely got out of high school. My grades were atrocious. Uh, I didn't show up for school. Uh, I was ill-disciplined. Now I've been a lifelong student because it became important to me. But it was learning fighting. And then I had men in my life that were good role models. And then I had to, I had actual events that I had to get ready for on a you know eight-week eight, eight basis of another fight coming up or another tournament. And I had to structure myself. And I learned very quickly what was being taught didn't work. There had to be more. It was good enough to get you started, but it wasn't enough. And uh, basically, the fight game is teaching people how to read other people and to read themselves. And uh, that is fighting in a nutshell. Uh, the great boxing trainer, Freddie Roach, has been five times, maybe more now, uh, trainer of the year. And what he does is he 
teaches other people to recognize those pre-assault indicators inside the other boxer, their ticks, their movements, their tenacity, the way that they tend to move so that the person that he's training gets to feel what the fight feels like beforehand. A lot of us have learned a whole bunch of techniques, but when the fight comes, it doesn't feel like that. So as, as a trainer, what I always wanted to do was allow people to feel that position uh, before it happens. How do I make good decisions? How am I timely? What is my process? And um, I, was a, I was an okay athlete. I was never a great athlete. I'm, I'm a good B athlete. Uh, I was hit by a car, almost lost my leg. So uh, I got some real physical damage, but I never let that stop me. And I think like a lot of coaches, uh, it's the B level athlete learns how to coach because I couldn't fall back on, I had no strengths. Uh, it was just okay across the board, you know, uh, strength, flexibility, speed, agility, endurance, nothing outstanding as an athlete, but I had this tenacious spirit of not giving up because I knew it was life or death for me from where I was coming from. And I knew that I could help other people. And then I was pretty odd <laughs> to admit. So I didn't fit in very well. And like most introverts, I needed a reason to talk to people and teaching class was the best reason for that. And as a martial arts instructor, I often taught 11, 12 hours a day. So the amount of teaching time that I got was ridiculous. And that's how it's affected this is, uh, you know, we don't have any, well, we do have some cool tools in martial arts, but mostly it's you. Whether you're doing Muay Thai or boxing, kickboxing, jujitsu, it's just you. So I had to figure out how to get people to function. And then I was teaching from four years old to 80 years old. And I had to create some sort of system that worked for people who didn't think like me. And uh, that's the hardest part for an instructor. That's the transcendent moment when you can coach anybody. It doesn't matter who they are. Uh, it doesn't matter gender. It doesn't matter race. It doesn't matter age. Nothing matters because, as we were talking about, the most important thing to me is your success. So my bias is towards elitism. And I want you to perform at your highest level. And that's what really geared me as a martial arts instructor. It's crippling to watch your students lose. It is so hard. Uh, and I bring that pattern in recognizing what's capable and what's probable. And uh, it, it was a very exciting time. And uh, I got COVID and had to shut the gym down. And it was the best decision I ever made because it really pivoted me into teaching firearms, um, which is better for a 58-year-old man <laughs> getting punched in the face and rolling in a gym. But it, I have a very different background, Genesis, than probably any other firearms instructor in the world because all I did was work with people. And I got to work with beginners, intermediates, and advanced on, an, on a daily basis and teach hour-long classes. And all of us long for that, you know, teaching people multiple times in a row, but it doesn't matter. Uh, you just have to teach them when you're in front of you and do the best you can. And you really only have seconds, maybe minutes, to make the lesson work and the impressions. So... That's how it all works together. So it's a crazy trip. And man, I look up and I go, how'd I get here? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, I can see a lot of that in your coaching style. Mm -hmm. uh, just the fact that you take a more holistic approach. It's not just about grip, sights, and trigger. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's a lot more than that. You're looking at everything. So a very, very deep culture and in MMA, uh, a lot of talent there. So how did that exactly translate over into uh, firearms instruction? Like, like, how did the complete combatant actually start? So that's kind of a weird process, too. Uh, you know, I saw a real need to integrate it. Like, I always loved shooting from day one. Uh, you know, I did 
brief stint, six years in law enforcement and stuff like that. And I always enjoyed shooting. Uh, I always felt like that if I had any talent in the world, it was being able to aim at things. Uh, I've always felt like I'm really good at that. And, uh, when I was running my gym, a guy came in, he had a, had a t-shirt on with a gun training school and I'd taken classes in the eighties. I took Masada Yub's class and whatnot, you know, when you had to read a magazine and send a check to an unknown place and just show up and hope somebody was there it was a really <laughs> shady endeavor, endeavor to do that. Uh, so I had a lot of chance. That was the only chance I had to train. And I didn't realize this whole industry existed until about 2009 that people were really involved in teaching and, and doing that. So, um, a guy in my class, I said, Hey, you know, yeah, I see your shirt. Do you do that? And he goes, Hey, yeah, you know, I do a little bit of teaching. Why don't you come out and I'll do a class for you guys for free. And this was the most professional gunfighting endeavor I've ever seen. And I was, I was captured. So I immediately made sure that he could never escape me and that I could be his assistant instructor. And I formed an apprenticeship with him for nearly six years to learn the ins and outs of the industry. Uh, he had a good background in the Marine Corps. Uh, he did some counterterrorism work and security battalion stuff, but he was also a forward observer. So he was really big on the ballistics part. We did a lot of range, long range shooting. And uh, I wanted to do something with guns, but I was a good shot. But I was like, what's necessary? And the complete combatant came about. Uh, we were going to do an integration from the first signs of danger to the legal aftermath of actually using every skill you have from managing distance, pre-assault indicators, verbal, how to how to grapple or fight with a gun at distance, what to say and do immediately afterwards. You know, we're talking about fast protocols then, and then how to communicate with law enforcement, how to communicate with your attorney, and how to make a great after action report so you understood what happened. And uh, we did that for nearly four years solid, uh, at least once a month. So it was a huge revelation in what people were seeing and not doing and shooting. Uh, I realized very early and, uh, you know, I think I don't mean any offense to anybody, but we're still in the very early stages of teaching firearms, much like martial arts was before the UFC. We're really starting to pressure test what we're doing now, uh, but we really don't understand too much what gunfights look like. And thankfully, people like John Korea have correlated all this information and it allowed me as a martial arts instructor to start recognizing what was important which I know is something we're going to talk about a little later. So I won't get too deep into that, but that's how I got started. And then what happened is I met a lot of shooters that were really struggling and I just like helping people. And it seemed to me shooting was a fairly easy subject, but it's difficult because it's, it's timely, it's fast. And that's what people really don't enjoy about it. And they don't understand how to manage themselves very well. And then I saw a lot of, uh, I guess the bias is from the gun backwards instead of the person forwards. So a lot of talk about technical properties, how to hold the gun, how to see the sights, but not much talk about what's gonna go on inside of you. How's your breathing gonna be affected? How much tension rate are you gonna have? How does postural stability allow you to affect the forces that are working on you? So it seems like a really natural evolution that I went from one to the other. And to me, it doesn't feel like I'm teaching anything different at the end of the day. It's just that the gun makes it easy. We don't have to have weight categories in gunfighting. We don't have to have, you know, because that's really a big deal. I mean, 10 pounds means the world and uh, a man and woman means the world. But with a firearm, I can teach anybody to fight pretty well, pretty quickly. But it is pressureful. You know, it's got to be efficient and you have to have a good enough information. You have to be able to hit the target. You need to be able to draw. So I think that's a long way that I got here. But it's interesting. It really affects the way I look at everything because I didn't learn the gun first like everybody else did. 
I learned it very last. So my flip for my bias is always to something else. You know, how do we work? What decisions do we make? What do we think is important? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned that in the early days of the complete combatant, and I think that, you know, I see a lot of that still now is that you're, you're covering everything from A to Z, like uh, before, during and after the conflict, how to talk to your lawyer, how to talk to, you know, um, how to manage unknown contacts and all the things, right? Um, so there's a lot of different aspects of self-defense that happen there. So how do you how do you balance all these multiple disciplines? So I avoid specialities. Uh, specificity is killing every martial art. Uh, we learned this very hard in, in, in martial arts because, you know, a, a bunch of Brazilian fighters named the Gracies decided that if they took all of us idiots down, they could beat us up. And they were right. And so what we saw was an evolution through the UFC where ground fighting was really dominant and then wrestling was really dominant. And then people learned to get back up and then striking became dominant again. And it's the specialist that really has a problem. As long as the fight is inside of the specialty, it's fine. And what we all think is we've got to work on one specialty, then another specialty, another specialty. But what we really have to do is be a generalist. And human beings don't learn in a straight line anyway. Uh, they learn through several mechanisms. One is transient knowledge. If you learn one thing in your life, then you can learn other things very quickly because you realize 20% of the inputs yield 80% of the outcomes. And being a specialist means that we're a manager first instead of a technical applier of skills. Um, you know, if you can take a fighter and get him out of his game and make him work with something else, God, is it really hard for him to win? So what we have to do is always find the generalist in this and it's good management, you know, from managing, seeing the fight coming to managing the distance, which equals time to having enough verbal skills that you don't make it worse. And you can actually, you know, work on ask, tell, make paradigm somewhere in that to understanding when you have no longer any choices that you've gone through can i do something may i should i you're at must and those pre-assault indicators are telling you you can see the future just slightly about what's going to happen and then you got to do the hardest thing in your life and win that fight and then afterwards you're expected to make a phone call that the rest of your future could not only will it be recorded but hinge upon and then you have to manage police officers when they show up to investigate it. And then the trained interrogators, the detectives are going to want to talk to you. And then your lawyer needs you to be present too. And what we do is we specialize on the stuff that people want to do, which is shooting. People love to shoot. So if I can give a bit of flavor to these other areas and bait the hook well enough, I can say there's more to it than this. And I can teach people to make good decisions overall. And I'll tell you what, after every force on force class, almost every person to a man or woman said to me, I hope I never get in a fight because this is an incredible endeavor. But the good news is people like Claude Warner do a lot of good research, right? The tactical professor, he's a good dude. Uh, he just, he wrote a book called The Real Life Shootings of the LAPD, which everybody should read. And some of these things are incredibly simple from the shooting perspective. Uh, Claude told me once he wanted to run an IDPA match uh, based on armed citizens encounters from the NRA journal. And he said it would be the most boring match in the world because you'd walk in and leave or you'd draw your gun and you wouldn't shoot or you'd fire two shots and it would be over. You know, <laughs> we train to a high level of shooting, but oftentimes we don't train to a high level of skill management. And I'm going to say the words that matter the most in fighting EQ beats IQ. Emotional quotient 
self-control, personality development, making good decisions will always beat IQ, which is the logical progression of technical application. Um, you know, really smart kids always end up doing smart stuff, but they work for the B students because the B students learned how to get through school with little less. And the C students usually end up owning, owning the country company they work for because their grades aren't good enough to get employed anywhere. But it's the guys like me who barely got out of school. We got to invent something new. We got to go find it. And I don't have any real, there's no buy-in in my background. Uh, everything I've done has been shattered in my life. You know, trust in my parents, gone. Uh, martial arts, I studied Kimpo, Wing Chun, Karate, Taekwondo, boxing, Muay Thai, uh, Judo, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and then MMA. And there wasn't one time where those didn't fail me utterly. And I had to make a better decision because they were so specialized and so secular that they don't fit everything. Some of them are pretty good at a lot of stuff. And then what we learned from MMA is you need to be good at a lot of things, but you need to make timely decisions when the fight's upon you. And uh, what most people won't do under pressure is if they make a bad decision, they'll make it worse. They can't give up a bad decision. They can't abandon it. And that's what the real difference is. It's, it's being a generalist over a specialist. And that's why you need to have a broad range of training uh, train with different instructors, get some different orthodoxies, realize that uh, overall you're the auditor of your skills and recognize what's kind of missing. Uh, I think everybody in everybody should learn to give public speeches that carries a gun because you need to be able to talk to people. Uh, you know, it's really difficult and verbal skills and verbal agility are not well taught. And we've all seen it when you have to give a command with a firearm in there. It's, it's a cognitive stack and it's a competing stack. And if one isn't well automated and automatic, you know, one of the guys that does a great job with this is Craig Douglas. You know, uh, I think all of us pay homage and are managing unknown contacts with his coursework because he recognized early how important it is to be able to do these things and do them well. So I think that's a long answer, but I think I covered it all for you. I love long answers. <laughs> <laughs> all about long answers. So also, um, I hope you'll forgive the distraction. Uh, my kid was screaming in the background. I, uh, <laughs> okay. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> I, um, so speaking of kids, I, I'm quickly running out of time. I'm quickly running out of budget. Um, I can't train as, as frequently as I once did. How can I, do you have any suggestions for, for myself and for your students? Uh, that have a very limited schedule and a very limited budget. So we, we you know, I do, of course, uh, this is, this is my thing really. Uh, number one is we have to recognize that it's all the same. No matter what you decide to train on that day, whether you do strength training or you decide to do dry practice or you decide to go for a walk, it's all training and recency matters to the brain. 72 hours, every 72 hours, the skill stays fresh. If we let it go for longer than that, in about three weeks, we'll learn about we'll lose about 10 or 15 percent of the overall skill. If we don't do it for three months, we'll lose 20 percent. So you never go back to the zero. Uh, so you have to recognize that training is training to you. Uh, whether you play a guitar or you drive a car or you're shooting a gun, you can always be present in your training. But the problem is most people don't understand what training truly means. They think that you have to stay in a shack like mine and spend four hours a day dry practicing. Uh, and what we find with high-level performance is that's not what they're doing. Uh, you want to have the four triggers that allow you to practice well. 
And five minutes of good practice is worth 45 minutes of poor practice. When people come to class, and I know you've heard this, they say to you, hey, I didn't want to come because I didn't want to make any mistakes. What they're saying is I don't want to fail. But failure is the best lesson. Uh, it teaches us what is too much and too little and how to be present for that. So we have to do in our training is the first thing is we got to set a clear goal. And most people can't set a clear goal. They just say, I want to be better. So that's a very general goal of what we want to do, but a clear goal. What do I want to be better at? If I was the armed citizen, I'd want to be better at uh, being able to move my feet and keep my hands up, having a good draw stroke with some verbal skills, and then getting first round hits and a possible follow-up action immediately after that. Uh, so that's not a lot of training. We can do that. We can do that in five minutes. We can practice it differently, but that would be a clear goal. All right. And I'm going to look at those and see what's missing. So say my draw stroke's not as good as it should be from concealment. We know it's a big advantage to have a concealed firearm over an over, uh, open carry firearm because it's a surprise. So I want to have a good concealed draw, but anybody that draws from concealment knows that it's fragile. There are, there's a flub indicator in there and you can miss your grip completely. Uh, so you've got to, got to work on it. You got to realize how you can correct those motions. So I'd go into immediate feedback. Was that a good draw? And then what you have to say to yourself, that was good enough, or I need to pay attention. Those are the only two things that are going to happen. And that's what immediate feedback is. If I'm shooting, it's always calling my shots off my sights. I have to know where to hit the target without looking. It's a binary decision. It's either a hit or it's a miss. And if it's a miss, the correction is without emotion. You just say, I didn't see enough. I didn't feel enough. I wasn't present. And the next thing is you need to be totally present in your practice. So some days our concentration is really good. Like mine is right now. I had some alpha brain right before I came on. So totally focused, ready to go. I made notes. I had a good preparatory cueing for this. So I'm really ready to do it. And I'm present for this conversation because it's really important for me. This is the only chance we're going to have to talk like this. Now we may do another show, but this is the only singular time. So if you're going to train, be present. If it's five minutes or it's one minute, you can get a lot of work done if you're simply present. And the other thing is you've got to stretch yourself. You have to challenge yourself just a bit, your skills versus your challenge level. If you're not challenging yourself and you do the same thing over and over, you're going to die of boredom and frustration, and it's not going to yield results. Variety is the secret to human beings, and we need to have variance in it. We need to practice. So that gets us to three modes of training. You have a preferential mode. It's either going to be speed or accuracy, and I can define that for you. If you're an accuracy first shooter, there's never enough information, and aiming is never done. So at heart, you have a lot of patience visually. Now you're a patient person, all right? Uh, someone who's a speed shooter, they go by feel. I'm done with the action, so therefore I should shoot. I haven't really seen anything, but I should shoot anyway. They're a little easier to train because all I have to do is cue them to see something. But with the accuracy first group, it's much harder because they're already getting pretty good results. Accuracy is its own reward. And unless I keep them on the timer and keep them accountable, they'll say that's good enough. And they'll make up sayings, you know, and they'll say, well, you know, speed is fine, accuracy is final, but they both exist. We need to train both of them. So in the morning I get up, I have a timer set with three presets. I do draws at different speeds and I only do about 12 to 15 of them because speed goes away quickly. I make sure that I practice pressing the trigger, seeing the sights by itself, which is accuracy. And then I finish up with performance mode. I put an array of targets up and I make some random drill that can be approached in multiple ways. And I say, I'm going to fire two shots on each of these targets and I'll do a reload somewhere along the way. And I'll take a step to the side as I'm doing it, something like that. 
and I just run it through once. And then I ask myself, was I present? What do I need to work on? Because that sets my next present. Am I going to practice again? Well, if I didn't learn anything in my last practice, the likelihood is no. And the number one thing, I, I don't know you that well, but I see you as a grinder. Uh, you grind your practice and you don't have a lot of curiosity about why things work. You just keep doing the reps. And then you have all your other duties as a father, as, as a business owner, as a teacher. And what happens is you keep, keep getting put over the side and you keep judging yourself as it's never good enough. That's an accuracy first problem. So what you want to do instead is say, I've done a good enough practice to satiate my recency, which is 72 hours. I am improving. And the real question in practice is, am I better today than I was yesterday? And that can only be answered is, did I learn anything? Was I seeing everything and was I feeling everything? And am I moving forward? Um, negative thoughts exist three to one in the brain. So it's really hard to overcome negativity. And negativity can break down into two complete processes. Number one is you're responsible for everything. Uh, most shooters have a high level of conscientiousness. So everything's their fault. And it's I, 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 me, 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 me. I have to do this. Me has to do this. So they don't ever let go. They don't enjoy their practice. They don't trust it. It's always presence. All right. The other thing is that at the end of the day, they don't see reality as it is. Because when we look at things, we see our perspective. And perspective is not reality. Perception is not reality. So uh, take a shooter like you. You're a very good shooter. All right. Yes, you, you're going to have to take that compliment. I know it's not your favorite thing, but you're a very good shooter uh, compared to the rest of the world. You're an outstanding shooter. Right. But do you recognize from the first day that you picked up a gun to now how far you've come? And you can only know that if you keep a detailed log of information. Because otherwise you'll lie to yourself. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but we all kind of skew the facts in our head. Like one time I got a point six eight draw. So from then on, I have to get a 0.68 draw on my failure, all right? Or one time I shot a perfect 100 on the five-yard roundup. So every time I have to shoot 100, looking for is averages in training. And it should be plus or minus 5 to 10% in each direction. So you practice, you measure what you did, you refine it, and you perform it. And then dry practice relative to live practice, maybe one to five ratios, something like that. So over a two-week time, you get two or three dry practices each week. You go to the range once, which is doable, and you enjoy your shooting. You measure yourself. You see if you've improved or not. If you haven't improved, get a little angry. Get dissatisfied with your status quo. Change what you're doing. Don't do the same thing over and over expecting different results. Why aren't you more curious? Why aren't you more passionate about changing? What you want is just to show up and do the work and everything to work out, and if you look at the high-level performers, that is not how it works. They are crazy, crazy hard on trying new things. They're always dabbling in something, and they try this new thing, and they won't. And I attack everything uh, because I'm a scientist at heart, which means I'm disproving hypothesis after hypothesis. I'm not proving it. And I'm looking for anything that contradicts the way I think about this so that I can improve my reality. And then my negative thoughts go away, my self-image becomes... I'm able to perform at a high level. And I always say this to myself when I train, and we'll stop with this one after this, but I tell myself I'm accurate, consistent, efficient, and disciplined. I understand the context of the situation, allowing me to perform at my highest level, earned through my present level of skill. What do you say to a man that believes in himself like that? 
And I know that anything happens that if you and I step up to the line and you beat me, I can shake your hand. I can look in your eye. And I said, I did everything I could. And you're the better man today. And then maybe next time I shoot a little bit better than you do. That doesn't mean anything. It just means that we're wetting each other's curiosity and our appetite to get better. And then respect is born. We get better at it. We enjoy our process. And the scientific term is autotelic behavior. It is rewarding at its heart because at the end of the day, you become a better person. And my wife says to me over and over again, if I don't practice, I'm not a very good human being because it's self-modulation. It allows me to modulate myself, understand myself and to grow. And I'm, you know, I'm 58 now. I'm pretty robust for my age. I look all right. I stay healthy, but I have to work a lot harder and I'm hanging out with, you know, some of the greatest shooters in the world right now. So I, I do the work, but I understand who I am. And at the end of the day, when I practice, I'm happy with myself and I do as much as I need to. And if I take a break, I don't let it become a habit because you're some of your habits, but I enjoy that day off, you know, like I'm going to teach rifle class this weekend. So I'm not touching a pistol unless we have a transition drill. I'm just going to enjoy shooting rifles. Uh, I'm teaching the class, but rifles are just like pistols, really no difference. They're easier in a lot of ways, but it's a break. It's something new. So I'm going to immerse myself in it. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to see what knowledge I can bring back to the rifle, to pistol shooting. And I'll have a great time the whole weekend. But I'm not going to drive practice in the morning. I'm going to rifle practice all weekend because I'm a rifle shooter right now. And then when I come back Monday, I'll do my other work. And that's how you take five minutes and turn it into a lifetime of habits. And habits build who you're going to be in the future. And they become the sum of your character. And you have to think, who do I want to be in a year? Not tomorrow. Who am I going to be in a year? Because whatever your habits are now, as difficult as they are and as self-rewarding, sometimes they're going to destroy your self-image at the end of the day. And I had a good friend of mine say, man, I'm really burned out. So I said the words he needed to hear. I said, you need to quit then. And he went, Jesus, Brian, what's wrong with you? You heartless man. I said, well, you do. If you don't want to be here, don't do it anymore. And then he gave me a whole bunch of reasons why he wanted to be here. And I said, now we're on the right track. That's why you want to shoot. So you get up and make sure your practice rewards those three things that you told me the reason you don't want to quit for because you just needed me to slap you a little bit and say, hey, listen, go ahead, get out. And he was fine after that. and He's done much better. But I think that's important. And I think finding a good practice schedule, even two times a week, you're going to be fantastically apt with the pistol if you do two or three times a week for five or 10 minutes, because this isn't that difficult of a skill. You know, it's not like learning MMA, which is an incredibly complex task. Learn your draw, see your sights, understand the context, watch it an ASP video and recreate it. Do something interesting. Be curious, be passionate, have a purpose, seek mastery and do it because it's your idea and nobody else's. All right. Off the pulpit. <laughs> preacher Brian going there. <laughs> I'm here for preacher Brian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man. 58. I hope I, I hope I'm as spry as you as 58 <laughs> when I get to 58. It's um, that age of magic, right? <laughs> All that martial so, arts <laughs> um, we talked a lot about tonight. Um, if you had to choose maybe the one single most important skill in self-defense, what would you choose? That's really hard. Uh, I would say proactive mindset. Um, without recognizing everything that's about to happen to you, you don't have a chance. Um, people even that are poorly prepared that see the situation coming often have a better outcome than those that don't. Uh, how do you train that? Boy, that's difficult. Um, so like I teach red dots a lot and I teach people three methodologies to manage the red dot. 
deliberate shooting, you know, hold the gun as stable as possible because you're the one moving, reactive shooting, fix it. All right. It's messed up. You have the power. Fix it. Put the sights where you want to. And then I teach predictive uh, mechanics feel good from the kinesthetic index. So I see the dot coming in. So therefore, I know it's headed in the right direction and I can shoot it. Uh, so I think for self-defense, it's the predictive, proactive mindset portion of it, recognizing pre-assault indicators, managing distance, understanding what an interview sounds like. Those things are really essential and they're really hard to train. Um, and they require some some real practice on that. Uh, from a shooting side standpoint for the armed citizen, you've got to work on your draw. Uh, you don't have to have a sub one second draw, which may not exist in the world in performance mode, only in speed mode. Very few people have that. But if I have a one five draw, I know I can hand it, handle most things in the world. Uh, Force Science has done some great work in this area. That That's, you know, whoever gets the best draw and gets a first round hit tends to win the fight. John Korea has seen that over and over in forcible felonies. So that's an important thing for shooting. I don't think there's any one thing I could do that would make me good enough. What I have to kind of do is see it as all the same thing. Whether I'm practicing shooting the dot, I'm practicing managing something that can't be managed well, which is you. Uh, I tell my wife that I'm ungovernable and we laugh about it because I am. Uh, she's, she's a very good manager. She's an indispensable organizational wizard, but she also has somebody she can't manage. And the most dreaded words that come out of my mouth are, Hey honey, I had an idea. <laughs> she just shot her. She's like, Oh, good Lord. No. So see it is all the same thing. You know, like my practice is, uh, drawing the gun is like sword work. I spent a lot of time cause I was going to be a, a, a samurai apparently at some point in my life, but the draw of the sword and the pistol are very similar in aspects. Same mindset, same same thing the Warriors wrote about, same first round hit, same sort of idea. And then hitting targets was prediction. You know, how to predict the dot, how to predict recoil, how to predict the other person was. Grappling is posture, stability, and grip. My whole body grips the gun. Forces of gravity and a pistol working on me, how to overcome that. And then overall, have confidence in what you're doing. If you do some practice, you're doing more than most people do. And know that that's enough. And if it's varied enough, it keeps the mind active. And don't look at that one solid skill alone. Look at how you manage yourself and others. Because if you've got EQ management, you're really ahead of the whole process. So number one thing is is managing your own mind, recognizing these problems so that you have a bit of a head start. Otherwise, you're just in an ambush and it's really, you just got to fight, you know. And uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I hate to admit this one, but as a young fighter, I often couldn't get going until the other guy punched me in the face. And I had a great boxing coach and his name was Dick Warner. And uh, his nickname was the bruiser. And if you've ever been in a close culture of other men and women, that are elitist, they don't give you nicknames you want. <laughs> they give you nicknames you've earned. And if people are calling a man the bruiser, it means he was a sadistic man at heart, but he was a very good coach. And he told me one time, he's like, Hey, you step in the ring there, buddy. And you're not ready to fight. He goes, if you can't get ready until the other guy hits you, let me hit you once. This man used to take 100-pound dumbbells and do tricep extensions with him. He hit me once. I couldn't feel my arm for a week. I was like, no, coach, I'm good, man. You don't need to hit me. He goes, and he used to call me pots and pans. I don't know why. He goes, pots and pans. If you can't be ready, let me help you. And I was like, no, I'm good. I don't want to get hit by you. You're out of my white class. But it was always that get ready, be ahead of things, you know. And I think that's a good, funny story to bring it home that that's what you got to do. You got to you got to get yourself ready to do the thing. And then when you do it, it's your idea. Get after it. Be passionate. Be curious. 
have purpose, seek mastery. And uh, that's what we're really missing now because uh, I can't, I can't offer you happiness, but I can offer you some contentment and that that's knowing who you are. Right on, right on. Yeah, man. I can't wait to get out to another class with you. <laughs> yeah. Look at so. that. Psychops is working. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit, just one last thing before we go. Um, yeah. So one thing that, you know, I think anybody that carries a gun, um, I think anybody that, you know, in the gun industry, they know that there's a lot of uh, marketing, a lot of promotions that there's a lot of social media influencers and they promote products. Of course, that's part of the business. Um, do you see that as a good thing or a bad thing or neither? <laughs> well, considering all the branding on me, <laughs> I, I am sponsored by some people, so I got to be careful with my answer here. But I think overall, yes, uh, with some caveats. So let's let's put on the lawyers' hats here and answer this in a way that's that's important. What's really hard is we have more information than has ever existed in our fingertips in a phone. There's no question that can't be answered. There's no skill that can't be learned. But the problem is you have to filter that effectively. You know who's for real and who's not. And oftentimes what gets the most likes and interest is simply manipulation. So if I say, you know, top three reasons you suck, people are going to watch that video because they want to fight against why I think that. But it gets interest and it drives the narrative. So when you choose an influencer, you know, and I'm, I'm sponsored by HK, which I'm very proud of because they sponsor me. Uh, they don't sponsor Brian shooting HK products. In fact, they didn't even make me shoot an HK gun until I wanted to. Uh, they just like our program and they said, we don't care if you sell our products, get out there, you're doing the good work. Uh, Filster, same way, I'm sponsored by them. Uh, they make a great holster and I love it, but they never put any pressure on me. So really good sponsors never say the hard sell is what you have to do. Usually it's mediocre to very inferior brands that have that kind of pressure on them. Uh, there's a couple other people who sponsor me, like Active Self Protection. Uh, I'm one of the few people they let upload a video without, you know, proofing it because they trust me. So what's the first thing we have to have is trust. Is this relationship trustworthy? Okay. Does the person conduct them in a way themselves in a way that matters? Are they trustworthy to the rest of the world? If they have personal issues outside of what they're teaching, that's a bad indicator to me um, because we're professionals at heart. Uh, if I'm good at coaching, I'm probably good at managing my life. Uh, it doesn't mean I don't make mistakes and get accounted to it, but I want to be trustworthy. And if I'm working with a product and I find it be spectacular and I say something's important, it's because I've seen it work a lot. And I've seen it with more than just my own anecdotal you know, uh, emphasis. I've seen thousands of shooters every year shooting with stuff. The other thing is they should be skillful. If you never see that person shoot or see their target or do what they're talking about, and there's narration and there's cuts and stuff like that, you gotta be super careful of that because we don't know if we're seeing skill or manipulation at heart. And if nobody else has ever seen them shoot, and they're, you know, they're not, not in that position, be careful of that. We saw it in martial arts a lot, you know. Uh, now it's Master Ken is the, you know, the, the, it's, to everybody else, it's a joke. To me, it's my first instructor. I mean, that's exactly what he was like. It's 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 painful. You know, we didn't know any better. Uh, he had a mullet. He had sleeves cut off. He had a, uh, you know, American Stars and Stripes gi. He could kill everybody with one touch. And we found out it was none of that was true. 
and he very seldom demonstrated except the things he wanted to. So I want you to be skillful. And, you know, just like I tell instructors, uh, people learn through example because mirror neurons are more powerful for that. So it's always important to show the whole process. And that includes failure. Whenever I fail in front of people, I tell them how I handle it. I show them how I handle it. I set the example and then they know how to overcome it. Uh, if you're if you are an influencer, you should be a tester, a researcher, uh, and you should be uncertain about the results that you're going to achieve. If you're 100 percent convinced that there's only one way to do something, you're living in a universe of absolutes that simply doesn't exist. There's no rule that you can mention to me that I can't find at least two or three contexts to break it. You know, so let's take firearms, treat all firearms as if they're always loaded, except during dry practice. I unload the gun, I check it, but I still don't treat it as if it's loaded. I, I have a big berm that I can go to, but most of us have to do it in other places. I'm in the road in the hotel, I've got to practice. So I can't, I do violate that time. So if I skillfully understand the context and make a good decision, that's what I should do. So I think influencers should be a part of that. You should always have your client's best interest at heart. And that always starts with this statement. I'm going to tell you guys very clearly, I don't know everything and I never will. And I make horrible mistakes on a daily basis. And I try to overcome them. And I try to get ahead of it. And interesting in Japanese, the word sensei doesn't mean teacher. It means one who's gone before. So I'm simply just kind of a guider of this. And I want you to improve. I don't care how well I shoot in class. I want to see you improve. And I have a young uh, apprentice. I love to say it that way because it feels like Star Wars all of a sudden, all right? But he really is. And he's frankly more skillful in speed mode than I am. Uh, he's just not as skillful in performance mode yet. Getty, you know, I'm talking about you. He's really good. And what we spend more time on is working him to success. I expect him to be better than I am. And I want him to be better, better than I am. And I never try to put him down in class. And if he outdoes me on anything, I say congratulations and I move on. That sort of behavior reflects well. Uh, and the last thing is just be an utter professional. You, you got, God, if you get to do this job, I mean, how many, how many people are traveling instructors like me? 30 of us, you know, making a living. I get to go around the country and, and, and meet nice people and, and shoot handguns for a living or rifles and teach image-based decisional drills. This is a gift and I'm grateful for every second of it. And you people have made it possible. And people like you, who is also an influencer now, makes it possible for me to get some of this information out here. So it is important and filter well. And if you have any doubts about it, maybe something's wrong. And then look at another one. If you write a paper and you don't quote five sources, you're going to have a problem. Three sources can always agree, but when you get to five, you're always going to find one that disagrees. And you always have to find out why that person disagrees, which leads to critical thinking. And that's how you source the people. Look at four or five people that do the same thing and see how much they agree. You're going to find 90, 95% of it's the same. Uh, like there's one guy in our industry that he really doesn't believe you need to see anything when you shoot. He's a great guy. I know him, but he just doesn't believe you have to see a whole lot. All right. I can't agree with that ever. But the further we move away from shooting, the more I agree with him. So I don't disrespect him anyway, but. I find him to be the odd one. And I know there's a whole community of people that feel like their kinesthetic index is simply enough to shoot from. So I have to measure my message to them and help them improve because he shows me the path of where the greatest resistance may lay. It's not inside what I wanted to be. It's inside something else. So I think it's important. And I think good people got to take the job seriously. 
and you got to be grateful for it because it's a hell of a thing to wake up in the morning and somebody writes you a check just simply for being you and going out and doing your job. But you can only take that check if you believe in the product and you think it's important or you believe in the training. And uh, if they don't recommend anybody else and you don't check anybody else out, you'll have problems in the long run. So that's perfect. We'll stop on that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a great place to stop, Brian. Yeah. Um, I'm watching my timer, man. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, um, how can folks get a hold of you if they want to train with you or if they want to ask you questions? How can, where can we find you? So uh, the completecombatant.com is really important. And uh, Shelly does a great job. My wife, she organizes everything there. And we are on Facebook, uh, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, anything you can think of. Uh, you can find us at thecompletecombatant.com. And that'll have all of it. it. has all my attributes. It has books you can read. has places you can find us. You can find the schedule there. It's well done. It's easy. You can almost see my entire name up here. All right. Right now I'm the complete com. But the rest is batten. All right. We have a silly ant for a logo, so you can't forget it because it is a combat ant. Yes. For you literally minded people. And it makes me laugh every time because I grew up with lions, tigers and dragons in the martial arts. So now I have an ant, which is just vicious. <laughs> They're vicious animals. <laughs> <laughs> That's outstanding. <laughs> uh, so all of those socials and all that contact info, I'm going yep. to uh, place that in the description for this video and on the podcast. Um, so anytime any of our listeners or any of our watchers are, are, are anytime they see this or they hear this, they'll be able to get a hold of you. Um, Brian, this hour just flew by and I treasure every second of it. Thank you so much for coming on. Man, it's a complete honor. Uh, you know, I'm going to tell you a personal secret. I have a little envy of you. You've got what's called a genuine smile. Uh, when you smile, it makes me want to smile. It's nice, though. You smile well. Like, I smile like Bruce the Shark. I'm like, looks like that's <laughs> happen, right? But you you have this ability to engage people and to be a part of them and feel comfortable and welcoming. And I think that's really important in a host. And so I'm just grateful to be a part of this. And anything I can ever do for you, please let me know. Awesome. Thanks a bunch, Brian. I really do appreciate it. Um, it's my and also... If you're listening or if you're watching, I just want to let you know how much we appreciate you for spending your time with us. Uh, you could have been spending your time doing anything um, with your family or earning some extra cash, but instead you're spending it with us. And I just want to let you know how much we appreciate it. Thanks a bunch, guys. Welcome to Memphis.